Hello, and welcome to Sacred Adventure Begin, an inquisitive space where we explore topics like gaining wisdom, travel, yoga, meditation, dance, art, and following our soul-guided paths. I'm your host, Emily, from gettingintoit.com, and together we'll focus on enjoying, sharing, and interpreting our sacred adventures and how to embody these lessons in our daily lives. Let's begin. Hello, everyone. I had a quick and kind of fun episode I wanted to share today. Due to the nature of what I'm trying to do with my intuitive business, getting into it, which includes coaching and readings, the the types of things that you'd expect from an intuitive practice, but with a like a twist, an applicable element that that involves homework, <laughs> that is specific to me and my academic training as well as my years as an educator. I often find myself writing about the hows and whys of intuitive practices. For example, how mantra or repetition of audible sound has been studied and proven to reduce the effects of anxiety in the mind. In other words, I often find myself writing and speaking about how there are studies to back up some of these practices or these experiences that we attribute to spirituality, not that they don't come from a deeply spiritual place, because I personally believe that they do. Um, a lot of this information comes from my own research, but one thing that I don't think I mention enough is that I take a ton of classes, like a ton um, Unimi, <laughs> all, all of the stuff, legitimate stuff. I'm taking a class right now, um, that is through a pretty prestigious university. And I think educating oneself is so, 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 so much fun, so much fun to do. And with everything that's available to us, both online and in person in today's world, why the heck not? take that online class. <laughs> Taking a class, if, at least for me, can provide so much information and keeps the proverbial wheels turning in terms of cognitive functioning, but also it stirs up within us callings, feelings, emotional reactions, the works. It's sort of the like kick that gets the wheels turning. Anyways, I'm enrolled in a class on the Bhagavad Gita, which is a text coming out of India that is referenced a lot in both yoga and spiritual metaphysical circles, ones in which I often find myself. And I am not super far in on the course. Today, though, the instructor, who is a scholar of Sanskrit, among other topics, um began talking about the difference between the truth of what we are experiencing. So the truth that's sort of like separate from us, like the way that the sun is hot. <laughs> the sun is hot whether or not you're noticing that the sun is hot. And then the truth that we bring to the experience. So when you step out into the sunlight and it's a 90 degree day and your skin starts to burn, that would be your experience of the sun being hot. So there's two truths there. There's the, the truth that the sun is hot and then there's the truth of your experience with it. And it was really interesting to me to think of awareness and experience this way. It's sort of similar to what I was talking about in the non-judgment episode, where I mentioned that what is happening around you 
is sort of like amoral. It's like neither right or wrong. The experience comes in just as it is. And then it's your judgment, your discernment of that that makes it desirable, not desirable, unnotable, however it is that you process that experience. And I really liked the way that this professor spoke of being, of these two as being separate but equal in terms of expressing truth when we're talking especially about big things like spirituality or God, awareness, etc. Because each of us has a truth that resonates specifically for us and through us, which is really cool to think that they're they're two very important things when you're approaching the truth and that we're not ever supposed to like know the whole truth. So paradoxes are totally okay. Contradictions are okay when this when these two things start to integrate. And I thought that was just so beautiful. So there's the truth that exists outside us before our awareness finds us and separate from us, like um, the book before you read it. And then the truth that comes from your reading the book, from your personal experience with it, and then how you understand it as well as apply it and then also express it. So the idea presented in this class was that poetry, art, music, expressive media were in a way the perfect way to talk about the big capital T truths because they leave space for the interpretation. In fact, they acknowledge that the interpretation occurred on their end and then is also going to be occurring on the viewer or reader's end, which we can see as like the truth that we bring to the experience or the wisdom that's offered to us by the art form and then how we take it as we experience it. I really love this. I love this concept a lot. And I do want to mention that this is um, the description that I just gave you is a very, very boiled down version of what was talked about in the discussion. And there were beautiful Sanskrit names for each of these two types of, of truth. Um, it did inspire me to hop on the mic today because it reminded me of why I love working with art, image, storytelling, story reading, sitting in circle, dance. I love the arts when it comes to helping people like find a greater understanding of who they are, like the big sort of picture. And however you come into a practice with an intuitive practitioner, maybe you maybe you come wanting like a past life reading or um, you just need somebody to talk to or you have a lot of anxiety and you want to see what meditation can do for you. I find that these are all really the art of the practices have a really beautiful way of helping you get to truths that like other ways of dealing with mental health do not do. And I'm not knocking anything. And certainly we incarnated now so that we have choice. You can figure out what it is that serves you and go with that. So, but have you ever noticed how like looking at a particular artist's paintings can help you understand a particular experience or emotion that you have? Like you were feeling great and then you saw this painting and it was really disturbing and now you're just like, you, you just can't rest. You just keep thinking about that image. Or 
the other way around, you're pretty angry and then you stop and you see this like beautiful painting that's super tranquil and it makes you feel really tranquil as well. Or how reading a book can make you cry when something happens to the characters that maybe has also happened to you or a conversation occurs in a novel that is so similar to something you're experiencing in your life and you can't help but internalize the message. Whew. So as a visual artist, I often experience myself gravitating toward using images to sort of kick me off down the path of self-discovery. And so I wanted to do an episode about using tarot cards or wisdom cards in particular because I think they're a really nice like, ready way to start working with image and how that can help you access maybe subconscious thoughts or memories or ways of being that you can't get to without, say, an image or a story. And in the case of tarot, you have both an image and a story that goes with either the cards. And actually, usually with most wisdom cards, you have an image and then you'll have like a booklet that comes with it that helps, uh, helps you understand the intent or the story behind it. So... For those of you who do not know, tarot or other wisdom decks are typically a collection of images that serve as archetypal reminders of common experiences, feelings, stories, or energies that we encounter throughout our lives. And actually, I have a really beautiful goddess deck, so sometimes there are stories of goddesses or energies or things that... Um, I have another deck that is just geometry, and I love it. It's so beautiful and really fun to work with. Um, but because they kind of tap into this collective unconscious sort of idea or this archetypal idea, they can be used for a myriad of purposes. From um, laying them out to see how we're feeling today, like using them as a mirror more or less, to becoming journal prompts, or even to to do divination, to tell the future, to look at a situation from like the angle of the past, the present, the future. Just depends on the layout, the reader. Um, whatever the use, it is through the truth of what we bring to them that we discover how the information that is present in us can be applied both to the cards in our lives. So the card is the truth that exists without us, <laughs> and then we bring our truth to them, which is why you'll often find, like, um, every different tarot reader is going to have a different relationship with each of the cards, and if they're if you're getting a reading from someone else, you'll notice that they're um, interpreting things a little bit differently or telling you a different story than maybe you would tell if you work with cards. Um, and both are totally valid because they're that truth that we ourselves bring, that little piece of the big puzzle that we can never quite, you know, get around. But it's important to see all the pieces even if they seem contradictory. I think uh, with tarot, sometimes people get hung up on this, like... <laughs> horror film version of tarot where the character in the film is is getting a reading and suddenly this deck of 78 different cards has only one card dun 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 and every time the reader flips it over it's death or the devil and tarot is evil i think people <laughs> i think people think that or they fear that they're going to see something tragic in the cards and it's going to be a bad omen and send them down a a terrible path 
when really the truth is if that path is existing in them, then the tarot is just what brings it out. It, it didn't send them on a path that way. But even this type of story, I think, <laughs> points to that collective awareness that sometimes things outside ourselves can point us to bigger and perhaps uncomfortable truths about our, our states in our lives, our emotional state, our mental state, the state of our relationships with the people around us. So again, tarot is that like mirror. Whether or not you believe it can predict the future or not is just the part of the truth that you bring to it. So in my experience, I've been surprised <laughs> by the uncanny accuracy of the cards. And whether you believe that forces outside ourselves speak to us through the cards or that they help us, again, as a mirror to better see the forces inside of ourselves, uh, they're a powerful prompt for self-exploration. Tarot cards and other wisdom cards are a powerful tool for meditation as well. So sometimes in the morning I'll sit down and I'll pick a deck and I'll lay out a couple cards and I'll meditate on the energies of those cards and how they're present in my life and how they might show up for me, especially, you know, if I do the past, present, future sort of reading or the subconscious, the aware, and the superconscious kind of aspects of that. I can think about, too, like, if, if I get a card in, like, the future, how that, like, might play out in my day or how I might embody that card during the day. So they have this really beautiful way of um, interacting with readers. I personally have been collecting different decks for some time, recognizing that each artist's portrayal of the different cards brings different meaning and references for me. I have decks that I use when I'm looking at relationships, others when I'm asking about job-related topics or I want to get some clarity around that others for spiritual topics, and so on and so on. I even have decks that I only read for others with and some that I'll only use for um, self-readings. And this isn't like um, a superstitious kind of thing. It literally is just that those are the types of messages that come through that deck. And that's why I use them in that way. Um, this isn't also intended to be a capitalist wet dream of tarot wisdom deck collection, <laughs> but instead to illustrate that variety can be important as well in evoking um, the reader or the looker to engage with certain emotions or experiences. Um, like I said, there's tons of decks out there. If you're Christian um, and you don't like the idea of like tarot, you can get angel card decks, you can get decks of the saints. And again, each card is going to have like a different energy that'll make you think of a different reference in your own life or a different truth that you bring to them. So I bought a deck a little while ago to kind of illustrate a little bit of what I'm talking about on Etsy. Um, I bought it because I thought the illustrations were beautiful, but I also was interested in it because it had been co-written by an artist and biologist, both of which who are men. Not that that should matter, but I thought it would be nice to have a deck written from that perspective. Uh, the deck itself focuses on biology and like entomology, uh, a lot of sort of ways of knowing Earth and, and the creatures that walk it. And the, the tarot book is called Rust Belt Arcana, 
tarot and the natural history in the exurban wilds. And it is some of the most interesting writing um, on the themes of the major arcana in the tarot and how they play out in the natural world. Um, the fool, the fool card is all about this um, breed of bear that uh, <laughs> go on this journey when they're young and make menaces of themselves. And it, it's so interesting how they weave that like inexperienced um, journeyer card that is the fool into the like life of this bear <laughs> so um and illustrate the different points of of the meaning of that card through the life of the bear which I thought was really cool it was really cool to read about um that type of bear as well the deck and the book are beautiful exercises also in what I was expressing above which is how each of our particular expertise brings something to the richness of the truths that we seek to understand and convey to each other. So the deck has replaced the traditional tarot arcana illustrations, those archetypal figures like um, death, like the big energies, death, rebirth, the star, um, balance, with uh, really interesting references to plants, flowers, and insects and other natural world elements instead of what you typically see in the major arcana. And they've done the same with the, the minor arcana as well, which are um, the part of the deck that is most similar to modern playing cards. Four suits, four face cards in each suit, and they've also replaced those with like a single illustration, like a single plant, a single flower, a single insect, a single bird. And they're just lovely. <laughs> and uh, the book doesn't cover the minor arcana, so it's really fun with that one to uh, draw a card and know what its traditional tarot meaning is and then look up the um, animal that's on there. And they give you like the genius and spe species and everything and then an illustration of it. But then to read about it and see how that animal's lifestyle actually like fits the traditional meaning of the card is kind of fun as well. The reason I bring this deck up is because spring has finally come to Boston. <laughs> um, Patrick and I just moved up here um, right around the new year, and I'll admit that it was really hard to leave behind the garden that I had spent years cultivating in Louisville, Kentucky, which can loosely be called the South. <laughs> Neither the South nor the North will claim Kentucky, <laughs> nor the East nor the West. So, But also, like, it was also hard to leave the, like, growing season that the warmer climate had. And I got up here and I was feeling kind of depressed about being in quarantine and, and not being able to put some of my bulbs in the ground until, like, way later than in Kentucky. Even now... Uh, I'm still waiting a few more weeks before I move my veggies out. <laughs> it's much colder and much windier here than I expected, but yeah. I was stewing a little bit in my loss of this connection with the earth and um, feeling really uh, low down <laughs> when I was seeing all the pictures my friends were posting about what's popping up in their garden from daffodils to... Uh, yeah. Lilacs. Ugh, I miss my lilacs. 
But then I remembered the Empress card from the deck, and then one of the writers of the deck is from Cleveland, which is, I think, about as cold as it is here in Boston. I, I really don't have a whole lot of experience being this far north, so I can't say whether or not that's true. But uh, I remember the dra drawing the Empress, the high, the Empress and the High Priestess. Those are my my jam. But uh, in this deck, the Empress card had such a particular strangeness and the image on it that they used for it was both like alluring and disturbing all at the same time. When in typical decks, the Empress card is usually like a mother figure or a woman sitting on a throne. She's like the bringer of life and she's that like female archetype by which we come to know and understand as well as experience and enter the world through. And so, of course, in the typical tarot, she's like very, you know, highly regarded. And in this deck, the image is of a woman at the top. She's dead, like lying on the ground. And then she's also being born with a mask on, like as a, as a fully formed human through this strange, like yoni-like folds of a dark purple flower. <laughs> yep. Oh, and then there's little skulls on it too. It's a dark looking card and I drew it once and actually I thought it was the high priestess because it had that like darkness that strangeness to it that like um stepping into the unknowable of, of femaleness and female knowledge and uh I but then I read it and I was like oh this is the impress so it, it was dead the image is definitely um different than that like stately queen of abundance sort of image we have from the traditional deck and in this image she is both emerging and dying so the card draws attention to the close relationship between life and death in the book the depiction of the card is explained in detail and as it turns out this yoni-like flower is called a skunk cabbage in this remembrance, I will admit that um, we broke quarantine <laughs> to drive out of the city to a like national reserve and forest that contained bogs just so we could see the skunk cabbage. So amid all of this torment I had about missing out on spring and feeling sad that I was in this lifeless place stuck indoors... <laughs> I recalled what I had read in this book about the skunk cabbage. Um, it's not around in warm climates like Kentucky, and I like it dawned on me that I was in the north and there might be some here. So I drug my poor husband miles and miles into the woods, in the stillness, in the cold, nothing's blooming, no green. <laughs> to see if we can run around near this like nasty muddy boggy area trying to smell flowers that smell like death <laughs> but I think the book does a sort of beautiful job of talking about this and I I do want to read it to you a little bit and this is again coming from the book called Rust Belt Arcana Tarot and the Natural History in Exurban Wilds um, and they're speaking here about the skunk cabbage. I'm reading from page 29. But skunk cabbage, a strange and ancient denizen of shady swamps, overcomes the cold and celebrates the wetness. The skunk cabbage generates its own heat, melting surrounding ice and snow. Blooming plants create a microclimate, 
around its flowers that can be up to 50 degrees warmer than the soil surrounding. The technical term is thermogenesis. A starch-filled underground stem fuels the metabolic, the metabolic heat production. Enzymes in the skunk cabbage alter the functions of its cells to convert stored energy into heat rather than growth. In the early spring, the skunk cabbage seems almost more animal than plant. That's, uh, it's so cool. <laughs> it's so cool. I'm going to read just a little bit more. Many of the insects that are active in the early spring and late winter scavenge carrion, beetles and flies seeking out dead animals that couldn't hold on through the long cold season. The insects follow the scent into the skunk cabbage's meat-colored splatches and pollinate the plant by taking pollen from one plant to another. The skunk cabbage is just one of many spring wildflowers to mimic flesh of winter-killed animals, exemplifying the archetypal spring theme of death and rebirth. The skunk cabbage is the first of these types of plants and uses its heating ability to get a jump on the competition for pollinators and sunlight. The teardrop-shaped spathe is a fleshy leaf full of air pockets like an insulating styrofoam. Inside the spathe, the plant maintains a temperature of 72 degrees around its round flower stalk. The warm temperature attracts insects and helps to disperse the scent. The skunk cabbage can produce heat for up to two weeks. The plant consumes significant energy to maintain that temperature, but by blooming in late winter, the skunk cabbage can take advantage of sunlight on the forest floor before the trees leaf out in the spring. As soon as the danger of frost has passed, the plant unfurls three-foot-long, one-foot-wide, tropical-looking leaves. This is often the first foliage available in the forest, but very few animals eat skunk cabbage. The leaves contain calcium oxalate crystals, a compound that causes burning and swelling in the mouth and throat. By summer, the large leaves will have withered, and all that will be left above ground of the skunk cabbage will be a slimy black stain and a seed ball that will be eaten by squirrels. But below ground, the plant persists and might survive indefinitely. Specimens several hundred years old have been found. Researchers believe they can live thousands of years. The only limiting factor on a skunk cabbage's lifespan is the slow accretion of organic matter. As plants die and leaves fall, eventually the soil level rises and the wetland dries out. I love it. It's, um, they go on in this to talk a little bit about, um, how uh, life and death and coming into life are parts of the Empress card. <laughs> um, but yeah, I love the card. The second I saw it, I was like, ooh, this is my card. This is my jam. It looks so dark and weird. I like it. So as we're sitting here um, in quarantine, sort of between two worlds, the one we knew before quarantine and the one that we imagine after, or at least I, I like to imagine a world after quarantine, <laughs> The card really was a reminder for me of the two sort of processes that are happening. Like one life is going away, a new life is coming through, and there's this sort of like liminal state that we're in, and that really is what that card represents, the image on that card in that deck. That's the the knowledge, the awareness 
that I bring to it. It also reminds us of how we're connected to like nature-based rhythms and how cool it is to look around us and see similarities between what's happening in our natural world um, and then also what's happening within us. In other words, I hope you feel free to bring your own interpretation to the card. And if you'd like to see the card I'm talking about, an image of it will be up on my website, gettingintoit.com. And a link to the deck is also in the show notes. I did want to say that we found the flowers. And, and now that I've seen them in one place, they're really easy to spot other places. And after we drove so long and hiked through the woods... <laughs> not even knowing where we were going and we came across some people that we definitely social distance from but we're shouting at them across a trail path like hey do you all know where these plants are <laughs> it was kind of embarrassing for my husband because I called them uh, we're out here looking for skunkweed <laughs> which I now know is not what you want to say when you're looking for skunk cabbage which is a plant and uh, not something else which is a uh, smokable thing so um, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's funny. There's some that I discovered on a walk the other day, maybe like a half a mile from the house. And every time I look at them, I, I am called to contemplate these larger themes and how these processes are, are coming out in my own life, uh, moving from one life to another, um, uh, starting something new and being sort of like cocooned in, in the house right now, um. It's, it's sort of a beautiful process, actually, but there are those dangerous elements, those little, you know, skulls that worry. And then there's also that hope, too. So I hope that you are out there having a good day. Um, and I just encourage you to maybe consider getting a deck that resonates with you and seeing all the references and ways that you can come to know yourself um, through them. Hope you're having a great day, and I hope to see you again soon. I'm also going to end this episode with an amazing song from Tara Kimes' album, Nourishment. And the links to Tara's music will be in the show notes, but it's just a beautiful song, and I thought you would enjoy it. <laughs>